This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Good morning. How are we? Both of you are good. Great. Excellent. Wonderful. I was, um, I was diagnosed uh, at, a, at a really early age. I think the, the sort of the, the event that sealed the deal was um, my brother and I had had super soaker water guns that we really enjoyed um, squirting each other with and having these just epic wars with. And so um, one day I decided that I was going to have my brother. We were walking along the side of our house and on the overhang there were these massive uh, wasp nests. And uh, so I, I told my brother, Adam, I said, Adam, I think it would be a good idea if you were to um, squirt that wasp nest with your super soaker water gun just to, to see what happens. And um, so I said, you know, you wait there and I'm going to go and I'm going to w- wait around the garage and look and peek and see what happens. And so he said, OK, um, which was his first mistake. But um, he stands there and I can remember vividly me peeking around the side of the garage and him squirting the wasp nest and just standing there. And I knew immediately I did not unpack the plan well enough. And I said, Adam, run. And he turns around and he starts running. And almost as soon as he did that, he hit the ground, started rolling around in the grass and screaming. Ow, ow, ow. And then I knew immediately after that, that I hadn't thought through the plan well enough either, because I knew that mom and dad were going to hear about this shortly thereafter. And they did. They did. I was diagnosed at an early age with um, older brother syndrome. Uh, anybody firstborn in their family? Okay. So you may have at times wrestled with um, older brother, older sister syndrome in your family as well. Um, older brother syndrome um, is defined by characteristics such as um, you refuse to be second to anyone, especially those who happen to be your siblings. Any amens? Yeah. Yeah. Your silence says it all. Uh, I turned out to uh, continue to live this pattern in my life out. Um, it, it meant that I was a high achiever, that I was afraid of failure, and that I wanted to control my environment that I lived in as best I could, as meticulously as I could, as often as I could. So it meant that um, I needed to know the plan at the beginning of the day as a kid. Uh, I still need to know the plan. At the beginning of the day, and I'm raising a son, a firstborn son, who very clearly at the age of four and a half has older brother syndrome as well. It's one of those things that can both make you and haunt you. That desire to achieve, that desire to be good enough, that desire to quote unquote make something of yourself, God can both redeem and it can separate you from him in unbelievable ways. You know, older brother syndrome, and that's actually not the technical term, but they've done a lot of these studies over the past few years on birth order. Um, And being the firstborn in a family means that there's going to be some characteristics that that are probably true about you. In the story we're going to look at again today, uh, we're going to see that that that's not only true for our lives in families, in um, sort of our personality, but it's possible to have spiritual older brother syndrome as well. In my uh, preparation this week, I've been affectionately referring to it as sobs. 
spiritual older brother syndrome. And, and here's the thing about spiritual older brother syndrome. The longer you sit in those chairs, the more likely it is that you have it. So the longer you've been coming in these doors, the, the more likely it is that you have it. One of my friends who's a pastor asked me recently, so how's it going teaching through the life of the Pharisees? Because that, that's got to be sort of a hard thing for people to hear. And I said, no, it's not. It's great. Everybody thinks I'm talking about somebody else. <laughs> nobody thinks. Nobody reads the story and goes, well, I, I think I might have spiritual older brother syndrome. So if you would invite me into your life just a little bit this morning, would you allow me to, to press a little bit? Would you allow me to, to just to just press on some areas in your in your heart in your soul to ask God the question is it is it possible is it possible that just maybe we have a case of sobs spiritual older brother syndrome Let me show you as we're going to look at the story of the prodigal again this morning what this looks like both in the older brother who is the epitome of spiritual older brother syndrome and what I think it plays out the way it plays out in your life and my life as well because like I said I'm in recovery some days are better than others but I still have a pretty good case of spiritual older brother syndrome so Jesus tells a story two distinct groups of people uh, one of the groups is a group called the tax collectors and the Pharisees. They're a group that clearly does not have it together, and they know they don't have it together. The other group that's present while Jesus tells this story is a group that's called the Pharisees, and we've been studying them over the last few weeks. Um, it's sort of Jesus talking to the best of the best and the worst of the worst, and in one story, he's really going to address both of them. So the story goes like this, and I'll give you the Cliff Notes version because Dan did a great job unpacking the love of the Father that we see in this passage as he taught last week. Jesus tells this story. There's a younger brother who says to his dad, Dad, I want all of my inheritance. It's essentially him saying, you're better to me dead than you are alive. So give me my share of the money. And the dad graciously cashes out the younger son's share and the younger son takes it and he blows it on lavish living, on licentiousness, on prostitutes, on you name it. And eventually the money runs out. And when the money runs out, he comes back. The younger brother comes back to his father. And before he can even make it home, the father runs to this younger son and embraces him lavishly, kisses him affectionately, and welcomes him home as though he'd never left. Well, there's two sons in the story, as I told you. And this morning, I want to unpack and look at, in a little bit more depth, the older son who has a case of spiritual older brother syndrome. Let me read verse 25 through 32. It's going to be the main section of text that we're going to focus our time of study in this morning. It says this. Now his older brother was in the field. Now just a, just a quick time out. Um, that's indicative of older brother syndrome. Hey, we're going to work. We're going to get our work on and we're going to produce and we're going to earn enough and make enough to be useful to the father. So he's out in the field and he came in and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, see, see, older brother syndrome always wants to ask what the party's for instead of just showing up and enjoying it. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, the young, the older brother was angry and refused to go in and his father came out to him and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Wah, wah, wah. But when this son of yours, he's not my brother, he's your son. When this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to his son, son, you're always with me. And all that I have, all that's mine is yours. It was fitting for us to celebrate and be glad. For this brother, your brother, was dead. And he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Wrestled with this week. Why? Why does the older brother have such a hard time celebrating the fact and enjoying the fact that his brother, his long lost brother, we have no idea how long he's been gone, but it's enough time to blow a pretty hefty inheritance. That he's gone and this older brother just can't seem to celebrate that fact. In fact, he doesn't even want to be near his dad who wants to celebrate the fact that his son, his youngest son, is finally home. What is it about this older brother that prevents him from going into the party? Well, let me propose to you this morning that it's something that we call moralism. And and I want to propose that the empty pursuit of moralism prevents us from living in the joy-filled presence of God. And let me say it again. The longer we sit in this building, the more potential there is for us to embrace this older brother syndrome that often plays itself out in what we call moralism. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, said it like this. Moralism means constructing a way of life in which I have no need of a saving God. It's this idea, if I can perform well enough, if I can do enough, if I can work hard enough and eliminate any need for grace, then I really won't need a God who says, I save. Because what do I need saving from? What do I need saving from? Here's the deal. I think that for many people, this is the core message of Christianity I think for many people, this is the core message of Christianity. Try harder, do more, clean up your act, and then come and celebrate a God who, at that point, welcomes you home. I think a lot of church has become moralism. May I propose to you, though, that that quest, that quest to do more, to try harder, to be better, is not actually the gospel In fact, it leaves you outside of the party. When it's all said and done, you'll recognize there's two sons. There's one son who's partying and there's one son who's pouting. And Jesus' open-ended ending wants us to wrestle with that question. 
Are we, are we at our core moralistic people or are we gospel people? This is the way that Paul said it to the Galatian church. He says, I'm astonished. I'm, I'm shocked. It's mind boggling that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the, what's that word? Grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he goes on to say, it's really no gospel at all. You see, if our interaction, our view with our view of God is does not have grace at the center point of it. It's not the gospel. It, it may be moralism. It may be try harder, do better, live right. But it's not the gospel because he says that that's the way he calls is by grace and that anything else is a different gospel completely. Unfortunately, I think if you were to ask, sort of just survey, even just the nation, what they, how they thought about Christianity, at its core, it would be, do better, try harder, and God will accept you. In five years of interacting with students on college campuses, that's the object, not, not the objection, the description I heard of Christianity more than any other. And you tell me it's surprising that people are walking away from the church? At our core, we all know that doesn't work. So this behavioral modification gospel that I think the older brother embraces is something that haunts and empties out our soul. But luckily, Jesus has so much more for us. So would you be open this morning to at least asking the question, is this, is this where I'm at? Is this what I, is this what I believe? Is this the gospel that I no. Well, let me just zero in on a few statements that the older brother makes to ask some maybe difficult questions for us. Verse 28. After he calls the servant and asks the servant, what's the party about? And the servant says, well, your dad is really happy that your uh, long lost brother's home. So he threw a party, a party to end all parties. It says that the older brother was angry and he refused to go in i mean picture in your head the party going off on the distance and and the older brother just sitting and pouting like dad come on dad look at look at me and look at all the things that i've done shouldn't you throw me a party and see, at the core of what the older brother believes is that he, he feels that the righteousness he's earned by the way he's behaved supersedes any sort of gift that the father could give. Because he thinks he's nailed it. And he doesn't need the grace that the father offers to his brother, who's just this sort of loser who's come back home finally. And I think one of the things we learn about older brother syndrome is that comparison drives us to bitterness and makes us unable to celebrate grace. That word comparison is huge. It's us looking at ourselves in light of everybody else. And so the older brother looks at himself in light of the younger brother and beats his chest a little bit. But then in the end, it haunts him because he gets what? He gets angry. He's angry that the grace of the Father is so lavish, is so expensive, is so ridiculous, in a sense. Well, why is he angry? Why is he angry? 
I think he's angry for a few reasons. One, I think the older brother would have been okay with the father setting up a payment plan. And the younger brother repaying all the things that he had squandered and maybe just worked it off and, and, and taken a little bit of time to, to prove himself. To prove that he was really reformed, that he was really recovered from his licentious living. I mean, the father just welcomes him home. The older brothers love to say, I'll welcome you back as long as you prove that you're really who you now say you are. So grace has this waiting period. And oftentimes we just call that waiting period church. Just come for a while, get involved, start serving, and then eventually we'll invite you into the fold. I think he's angry because there's no waiting period. I think he's angry, um, secondly, because somebody paid for that fatted calf. And you read through the story, and the father says to the son at the very end, everything I have is whose? Yours. Including... That piece of steak that your brother is gording himself on right now. Isn't that a hard part about grace? It's free to the one who receives it, but it's costly to the one who gives it. I think older brothers have this tendency to undervalue the worth of grace as they overvalue the cost. In, in our own lives, I mean, in our own lives, because we're called to be people who offer grace, but that grace is costly. And that cost shows up in the form of time, in, in the form of sacrifice, in the form of finances sometimes. This, this uh, last week, I heard a story about um, a person, a member of our congregation, who has really embraced someone who started coming a while ago, who's wrestling with addiction. And this wrestling, they, they uh, came to Jesus and, and were doing great for a time. And then afterwards, they sort of fell back into these patterns that they developed over the course of their life. It's one of those situations where it's easy to go older brother, isn't it? It's easy to go older brother and to say, well, you should clean up your act and you should try harder and you should do more. And oftentimes that's what we do. But Man, this, this couple in our congregation said, in no uncertain terms, we are not letting you go. And so they kept calling. They kept texting. They kept emailing. They kept Facebooking. And finally, after months, she said, you know what? I'm willing to get help. And they said, we'll drive you. Where do you need to go? And she said, Fort Collins. And it had just flooded. You know, it was right after the flood, and so this couple still, they hop in the car, and on that Saturday following the flood, through barricades on the highway, drive her up to a rehab in Fort Collins. And I had to wrestle with this question inside of me. Is grace worth the cost that it often takes to extend it? Because there's a cost, friend. There's a cost to grace. If we're going to be a community of believers who says we will offer grace to the world around us, we have to know that there is going to be a cost. And that cost is not only in what we extend, but it's in the way that we view ourselves. Because we have to first, in order to admit that we'll or be people that will give grace, we have to admit that we need it. 
That may be the, the older brother's biggest hiccup is he cannot understand that he is not all that much different than his younger brother. I love the way that the great pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says, it is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or to her. It's this heart posture that says, but for the grace of God, I would be in the same position. I wonder if in our lives, if this comparison trap that we often fall into has robbed us of the ability to really, truly extend and offer costly grace to the people around us. It's one of the main issues that SOBS causes in people. Unwillingness to forgive. Well, He says a few other things in this passage as well. Verse 28, he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, literally begged him, come on, come on. Don't you love it? The father not only runs to the younger son, as he sees him coming a long way off, he runs him down, he chases him down, he welcomes him back, but he also runs to and entreats the older son and says, come on. Quit playing this uh, moralistic, pietistic game. Come in the party. It's great. It's your calf. Come on. And he entreats him. And he entreats him. I love it that the grace of God is not only for those outside of the fold of God, but it's also for those inside. It's also for you. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it's for, it's for you. It's him saying, come on, you've, you've wandered. You're doing this on your own. Come on back. Come on home. There's a party going on and I want you involved. But he answered his father, look, these many years, and that's why I think it's probably years since the younger son has been gone. I think he's comparing his service to the younger son's wastefulness. These many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Notice he's doing a few things. One, he's sort of beating his chest a little bit and giving his spiritual resume to his dad. But he's also comparing himself to his brother. You never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. This word, I've served you, could literally be translated, I've been a slave for you. I've been slaving. And you see, here's the second thing we learn about older brother syndrome, spiritual older brother syndrome, is that our obedience is driven by dutiful obligation, not joyful delight. Not joyful delight. And this work is, as you can see, for the older son, this work is drudgery. This work is pulling up his bootstraps quite literally and going out into the field and working. And I think his dad wants to say back to him, really? Is that, is that all that it was? Because it wasn't my intention that you would just work for me, but that you would live with me. That was the intention. Did you know that God's desire, as he gives you every single command in this book, is that you would walk in joy, that you would walk in delight, 
that we wouldn't just serve because we feel like we're supposed to, that Christianity, as people start following Jesus, should not be an invitation to working and to guilt. It should be an invitation to resting in grace that then propels us forward. Those are two very different approaches to God. Listen to the way that the psalmist writes in one of my favorite passages. He says, you make known to me, God, the path of life. And in your presence, there's fullness of what? Joy. And on your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You see, here's one of the things that this older brother missed. And one of the things that we older brothers often miss too. That God's invitation to work alongside of him in the field of his kingdom that's all around us is not an invitation to, to dutiful working. It's an invitation to joy. Walking with him. Enjoying him. Understanding his love for us all the more. But you see, for the older brother... You can tell by the way that he says, I've served you, I've never disobeyed you. See, for him, service and obedience was his way to control his dad. It was his way to control his dad. It was his way to get what he wanted from his father. Which, ironically, is the very same thing that his younger brother did. In a very different way. See, the younger brother says to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. The older brother says, I'm going to work till you're dead so I can have your stuff. It's not all that different. They both, they both want the stuff the father offers more than they want the father who offers it. So, let me press just a little bit and ask, do we tend that way? Do we tend that way? To, to, do we tend to say to God, God, um, I love the blessing that you give. Maybe a little bit more than, than I love you. Here's how it shows up. Here's how it shows up. See, when things don't go our way, we say to God, well, God, but, but I was in church for you know three out of four weeks, which is better than average. And God, I, I gave, you know, 9.5% and, and I served and I did this. And God, here's my resume. Why don't you come through for me? And really what it is, what it is, is us using obedience to feel like we can pull these magical marionette strings that God's attached to so that he does exactly what we want him to do. It's what the younger son did. It's what... We often do too. Um, let me rephrase it. It's what I often do too. I've noticed it in myself just recently. Whereas my mom continues to get sicker and sicker, I start to play this pity party outside of the party game with God. And I go, God, haven't I done enough for you to come through for me? God, haven't I given you enough, God, that you would, that you would heal? That you would provide? That you would fill in the blank? And as soon as I think I've recovered from spiritual older brother syndrome, I once again find myself outside of the party that his presence really is. I wonder how many of you struggle with the same thing. 
I love the way that Keller, and, and I take a lot from Keller because he wrote a great book on the prodigal called The Prodigal God, which I highly, highly, highly recommend that you go and buy. But here's what he says. The main barrier between the Pharisees and God, the Pharisees that he's speaking to right there in this context, the Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. See, they thought that they'd done enough. They thought they'd done enough to control God, to get him to do what they wanted. And what they missed was that God's work in them, in their hearts, in their lives, in their souls, was way more important than anything that they could do for God. He said, I think that truth could quite potentially transform us. To recognize that God's work in you is more important than your work for God. Friends, there's a reason that we're called human beings, not human doings. And I think our tendency, at least in people of faith, is to just sort of work along this pendulum where it starts to swing, swing, swing. We enter by grace and we end by works. And I just want to say really clearly to you today, can you just lift your head up and look at me for just a second? That's not God's intention for you. His intention for you is that you would soak in the goodness of the gospel and that you would live out of it instead of living it out and trying to earn it and finally believing that it's true. It's the next thing that I want to highlight in the older brother. Verse 30. He says in verse 29, you never gave me a young goat in comparison to this fatted calf. I never even got a goat. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but your son, when he came home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that's mine is yours. I wonder if at this moment, the younger brother just may, or the older brother maybe just pauses to actually hear what his dad's saying. Because what his dad is saying is, all of this that you're standing on, all of this that you're working for is your inheritance, not your paycheck. It's already, it's already yours. And how devastating was it, this mindset that the younger brother had is, if I can work enough, if I can do enough, if I can produce enough, then it will be mine. And he missed the boat completely. So do I. And so do I. You see, I think one of the things that Jesus wants to draw out for us is that working for something we already possess will prohibit from enjoying what's rightfully, already, presently, now, today, ours. And you go, well, Ryan, how did the older son do that and and how do we? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. I think the older son struggled to really believe that his dad loved him. 
I mean, the fact that he's working when the story starts and he's working when the story ends and that he spends zero time with the father except in confrontation in the story is a huge signal to us. He feels very uncomfortable around his dad. I think he thinks if I can produce enough, then dad will love me. And so he starts overcompensating. He starts comparing. He starts uh, working harder and harder and harder to try to earn something that's already his. It's already his. And see, as long as you're trying to control God by your goodness, by your moralism, you will never be fully sure that he loves you. Ever. There's always going to be this lingering doubt in the older brother's head. That says, I wonder if I've done enough. I wonder if I've produced enough. I wonder if I'm good enough for dad, for the father, for God to love me. And so I think one of the things that God wants me to press on in you this morning is, are you confident enough in his love to rest? To rest from producing for him. And to just pause to receive from him. See, when we doubt the love that God has for us, let me just, I'm just going to read a few of these things that I think happen internally in our soul. We process unanswered prayer as God's punishment for our lack of obedience. God, I must not have done enough because you didn't come through for me. Criticism from others devastates us because we're constantly feeling like we fall short anyway. And so if we work, 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 and a someone's um, word of you failed me or you let me down or you fell short can just absolutely cripple us. Our need for approval is sky high. When we fail, not if, but when we fail, guilt over what we've done is potentially crippling of us. We wrestle with this idea that God could actually forgive us. And finally, and I think most devastatingly, is our prayer life just dries up and withers. Because we know who we are and we also have this perspective of God that he's going to love us if and when on that some magical day we get it all together. So who wants to go and talk with that kind of God? I wonder if in many ways churches across the nation are full of followers of Jesus and they are that who have no idea what's already theirs. So can I just, will you allow me for a moment just to speak gospel over you? That you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in Jesus. That he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That your sin, as dark as it may be, and as present as it may be, if you're under his blood, is washed clean. Zero of it held against you. Because there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. And he's taken you from being an orphan outside of the party distant land and he brought you back and he put a ring on your finger and a robe of righteousness on your back and he no longer calls you slave but he calls you son or daughter of the king that's yours if you're in christ right now not someday but today today 
And man, if we could be a church that actually believes the things that are presently true about us, we would change the world. We would change the world. And what a bummer if we go through our whole life waiting and hoping and working for something that's already And you see, older brother syndrome at its core robs you of the ability to be with God because your hope is that someday you'll be good enough for him. Newsflash. No, you won't. No, you won't. And that's not the gospel anyway. That's not the gospel anyway. The gospel is, is that you will be good enough and that his grace is sufficient enough in whatever situation you're in. As dark as it may be, as far off as you may be, you'll notice when the younger son turns, it's as though the dad's already there saying, I'm so glad you're home. When he's not even home yet, the father just picks him up and carries him home. Sometimes younger brothers have a better understanding of the gospel than older brothers. Would you believe what's true about you? Not a future version of you, but you today. He loves you. Well, as I said, the story ends sort of ambiguously, but um, don't read that as unintentionally, as though Jesus may have like ran out of breath or didn't have any more ideas to share. It ends intentionally because he's looking as he ends. And as he said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. You have to know that he looks over at the Pharisees and goes, well, what do you think about that? It was fitting, it was right for us to celebrate, to throw this party and to be glad for your brother is dead and now he's alive. Now that's the gospel right there. That Jesus makes dead things alive. He was lost and he was found, period, end of story. And the question is just floated out to the older brothers. Well, are you going to come into the party or not? Are you going to celebrate grace or are you going to continue to work for something that's already yours? Are you going to party or are you going to pout? Which one is it? Because I'm a gracious, lavish God. And I think the challenge for us today would be pretty simple. But it would be to remember God's grace To you and to me. To enjoy it. See, older brothers have a hard time enjoying grace. They feel like they're cheapening it. So we're going to, we do the both and real well. We're going to accept grace and we're going to work for it because we don't want cheap grace. Well, it's not cheap, it's free. And so you can either enjoy it or continue to try to work for it. There's nothing spiritual about working for something you already have. There's nothing spiritual about combining your good works with the grace of God. I think the most spiritual thing, as Jesus said, the most spiritual thing we can do is to be the type of people that celebrate the dead being made alive and the lost being found with lavish parties. With lavish parties. I think it's one of the most spiritual things that you can do. 
is to be somebody that knows and rests and relishes in the grace of God to you and enters in to this party, this beautiful declaration that God has provided gracious rescue for you and for me. And, and we often think of that as heaven, and it is that, but it's not only that. It's today tasting and seeing and knowing. That God is good to you. I love the way that the hymn writer Isaac Watts put it when he said this. The hill of Zion, our, our, our salvation, yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. So I'll leave you with a question. Will you come in from the field older brother would you stop comparing yourself with other people they're not good enough and neither are you would you rest from working long enough to hear his still small voice say even in your lack of productivity I love you and I'm for you and for goodness sake can we stop Wishing and hoping and praying and working for things that Jesus says are already ours. See, the process of Christian maturity is learning to live out day by day what's already true about you because of the cross of Jesus. And I pray that you would come in from the field long enough to hear the music to dance at the party, and to enjoy the feast that he's prepared for you. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, visit southfellowship.org.